Peter, who was a disciple of Jesus, of course, is writing to several provinces in Asia Minor that have experienced some acute persecution. Now, he provides certainly some needed theological concepts that they are going to need to grasp during this time. But there is something else that I think sets this section off that is pretty cool. Notice the first word, beloved. Beloved. Listen, we can all relate to the doubts that come when persecution occurs, when hard things happening. You know, what is happening to me, right? We think that. Now, there are certainly solid answers to know about God in a theological sense. But how about this? To know that we are valued by God and that we are beloved by him and other brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. Peter gently reminds the Christians in Asia Minor that they are precious to him, that they are precious to God. And listen, whether it's reassurance from a mentor, a a spouse, um, a parent, the knowledge that we matter to other people frames our troubles with that affection and that love. Over 20 years ago, I had surgery. It seemed rather benign getting into it, but subsequently there were three trips to the emergency room afterwards, and, uh, you know, it was a little, little hairy there for a while. One of the episodes of waking up in uh, the surgery uh, recovery room, thank you, the recovery room, you know, you're a little nervous going in, and in the recovery room was a face. And I'm like, wait a minute. You know, I had that anesthesia thing waking up. I know this person. And it was a nurse who went to our church and who had these reassuring words, you know, with, with her expertise and her care, and I felt greatly comforted to know that uh, I was in good hands. And it certainly eased my concerns. And I think what Peter is reminding these believers in Asia Minor is that they are not alone. That there are people that love you, I love you, God loves you, and that, that frames this whole thing. Don't ever forget that when we're talking about persecutions. So let's all stand as we read our passage. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Do not be surprised at what is happening to you. Surprise is a word that means much more than just the wonderment that comes when you open up a present and you wonder what's inside. It means to be emotionally impacted, such as upset or bewildered. Peter is delivering a dose of reality about the way that life works and about God's affection for them. First of all, 
I want us to recognize that Peter has suffered because of his faith. He can, he can speak from experience. He experienced threats and imprisonments and would later suffer martyrdom. In fact, we know that Peter from history was crucified upside down because he didn't feel that he was fit to be right side up when he was crucified like his Savior. Wow. So Peter bore the testimony of hardship. And then the history of the early church showed the reality of persecution. The entire book of Acts reveals multiple episodes of unbelieving Jews and government officials who were on the warpath against Christians. Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Corinth, Jerusalem, Philippi, Ephesus were all locations of imprisonment or physical harm done to Christians. Unless you think that was for a bygone era, I would remind you, Afghanistan, North Korea, Somalia, Libya, Yemen, Nigeria, Iran, India, Sudan, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, these are just part of the top 10 who have a track record of similar treatment to Christians like we read about in Acts. Over our sabbatical, Janet and I met with two couples, our missionaries here at CCC, who are ministering in the Middle East. And one of them informed me, we hope that we can move to Iraq. They have children. And I'm thinking, wow, what a privilege to know these people who laid on the line to move to Iraq for the sake of the gospel, knowing what those regions are like. It reminds us that Peter's letter is relevant today, right? So Peter starts with a reality check. Suffering is not foreign or alien to the Christian. Following Christ does not provide immunity from suffering. Are we blessed? Yes. Are the rewards? Yes. Will it be worth it? More than we can imagine. But don't be surprised. Things are literally heating up. There are going to be fiery trials. Now, this can mean a couple different things. The first has to do with Nero, the Roman emperor, who was accused of setting the city on fire to build new structures that he favored. There were many row houses built from wood that went up quickly. And when sections were extinguished, Nero reportedly sent soldiers out to reignite the flame. It was said he entertained himself as he was charmed by the loveliness of the flames. <laughs> and as public opinion started to turn against him, he blamed Christians for starting the blaze. And because Christians were connected to the Jews, anti-Semitism stoked the lie and created more 
hatred toward Christians. One commentator added this to his understanding of fiery trial. Tacitus, the Roman historian, reported that Nero rolled Christians in pitch or oil and then set fire to them while they were still alive and used them as living torches to light his garden parties. He served them up in the skins of wild animals to his hunting dogs to tear them to shreds. They were also nailed to crosses. Christians perished in a delirium of savagery at that time, and even lynching became very common. Within a few years, Christians were imprisoned, racked, seared, broiled, burned, scourged, stoned, and hanged. Some were lacerated with hot knives and others thrown on the horns of wild bulls. End quote. In addition to this historical note, we have the Old Testament truth that Peter would have known when he wrote his book. It's in Proverbs 27, 21. The crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold and a man is tested by his praise. The idea is that a refiner's fire in suffering purifies and strengthens believers. And then we have on the other end of the verse, a man is tested by how he handles praise. But on, for our purposes, crucible and furnace imply hardship. The point is, persecution tests the faith of believers. It can strengthen our faith by getting rid of impurities. In fact, Peter referred to this in the first chapter. In this you rejoice, now for a little while. If necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Many people, when they go through cancer, when maybe they lose a job, uh, when they have some hardship occur, begin to have this laser focus on things eternal. Right? Christ is realized to be adept in providing security. Not our health, where maybe it was in that before. Not our pocketbook, maybe it was in that before. And in this way, we are purified. When we see the benefit of hardships, it's much easier to count trials as something that is to be accepted. And by accepting them, what that means partly is that we still see God at work. He's not abandoned us. And we still experience joy in the Christian life. Now, it's not that we love the pain, but we love the reward that comes from the endurance. If trials are strange to us, I think we are susceptible to long-term bitterness. Philip Yancey said this, the kingdom of suffering is a democracy, and we all stand in it or alongside it with nothing but our naked humanity, end quote. Consider, my dear friends, that Satan has been attacking God and his people since the fall in Genesis 3. We are foreigners, pilgrims in this world since Satan himself is the prince of this world. So whatever glorifies God is going to 
anger Satan, right? Actually, the strange thing would be a Christian who has no opposition, no persecution, no trials. Jesus said, in this world, you will have what? Tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. You're not on the losing team. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad and his glory is revealed. I think honestly, well, many of us find it difficult to rejoice when we're suffering. Here's, I think, the hope of this. I don't think God would have this penned by Peter unless there was a way that this could happen and that we can choose joy. We can choose to have our minds on some objective realities. And I know sometimes we have to take every thought captive, right? You do whatever it's going to take, but you have to think about the objective realities. Notice this qualifier here. As it, it's, this happens when we are sharing in Christ's suffering. What that can be, the experience of every believer, we currently live in the culture in which comfort is valued more than endurance. And we as Christians are not immune to being influenced by the culture in this regard. The sad fact is not every believer matures to the point where they can endure real suffering with Christ. The tolerance or pain or even conflict for many believers is contingent on their comfort level. Our faithfulness has to move beyond our comfort level. And our priorities have to be kingdom focused. That's part of the objective choice we have to make. And when the glory of Christ is our goal and I die to self, I can welcome suffering. Faithfulness to Christ, intimacy and security in Christ, these provide unique opportunities for the believer in the midst of suffering. So when we share in Christ's suffering, let's learn of some things that that can mean. First of all, our suffering means unique fellowship with Christ. We often gloss over familiar phrases in the Bible without considering their application to us. You can probably remember a very famous story that you learned, for those of you who grew up in the church, of Sunday school of three Hebrews that were in a furnace, that were stuck there by Nebuchadnezzar. But do you remember? They had a visitor in the furnace, a pre-incarnate Christ in the furnace, right? What's the lesson? They were not alone. We are not alone. Paul was a target of a plot to kill him. And he was placed in jail in Acts 23. And we read this. The Lord stood by him. In Matthew 28, 20, Christ promised to be with us to the end of the world. This means that there is a unique connection where he meets us at these trying times. 
We see his faithfulness in us. We feel the comfort of his presence. We experience his power to endure. And the Apostle Paul writes about this topic in Philippians 3. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I counted everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For this sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And by the way, much of that had to do with a religious upbringing. I got to count as rubbish because a lot of religion can move you away from Christ. But he, but he says, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of of my own. It comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. The apostle Paul was ambitious, not just in being introduced to Christ, but growing in Christ, maturing in Christ, and that means suffering with Christ. He didn't say that I may know about him, but that I may know him. And between those two statements can be all the difference in the world. We recognize, of course, the special meaning of the word know. It means more than just, you know, a serious study to have knowledge like geometry or calculus. It doesn't mean to learn by intuition, to say, you know, I have a feeling about this. And such knowledge was not what Paul had in mind of just intuition or just content knowledge in Philippians 3.10. He wanted to know Jesus in the truest biblical sense, personally and experientially, day by day. And this includes content of the brain, but it's not a complete understanding of the word. To know is to enter into a deep personal intimacy, a relational practical dimension. For instance, the Bible, uh, when it says Adam knew Eve, it's not being shy about sexual matters, but because sex does not communicate everything about such knowledge. There's knowledge between a man and a woman that is deep, that is an intimate union. That's what the word means. Consequently, fellowship with Christ and his suffering takes us down a road of maturity and promotes a deep, intimate union with him. When I'm at my weakest in suffering, and that's a good thing to realize our weakness, Christ supplies what is needed, and then the fellowship grows. One more thought about this. To have the fellowship of his sufferings as an element of, you know, receiving this relationship from Christ this love that he offers us in the midst of suffering. Christ is not getting his jollies off of us suffering. All right, he's not saying, you know, suck it up, buttercup. That's not his message to us. Last evening, Janet and I visited Kyle, who was out on his back porch. It was his first visit to the concrete slab that he landed on from his roof when he crushed his foot and his wrist. And by the way, he has surgery on his foot on Tuesday, so you can pray for him. 
The judges, by the way, only gave him a one on the landing, so it was not good. All right. Listen, as I imagined him in pain and with, sorry to be graphic, but bones sticking out, I, can, I can't bear it. That's my son. And Janet and I will do anything to relieve the consequences of that. And we know it could have been much worse. It could have broke his back, hit his head. A lot could have happened. But I think of Christ in this way. That he understands our pain. And he does all he can as our provision in persecution. That he's there, he empathizes, and he provides whatever is needed. Now listen, since we are imperfect as parents, we are fallen parents, imagine how much better Christ is at doing that. Right? You know, I just send memes of people falling off ladders and things like that, you know. <laughs> try to make them laugh, but they need more than that. Sharing Christ's suffering is going to also mean this. Our suffering for Christ means rich reward from Christ. You know, many believe that the absence of suffering brings glory. But that is not the biblical account. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God. And fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Being an heir speaks to a rich future and reward from Christ. But that's going to take suffering. You know, the piano student may not enjoy practicing scales daily, but they look forward one day to playing beautiful music. The athlete may not enjoy the intense training, but it prepares them for the ball game ahead. And in our case, suffering brings rich reward. Consider the specific crowns that are mentioned for us. And by the way, I think it would be a cruel trick to mention these crowns and then prohibit desiring them. I've heard, I don't know how many Christians say, you know, you shouldn't desire these crowns or rewards from Jesus. What? Then God is really cruel to us to let us know about these and then say, now, don't think about it. Here it is. I'm going to give these to you, but I don't want you to consider these. No. It's because of his graciousness to us. He's trying to just further motivate us for endurance and faithfulness. He's so good to us. We read, for instance, the crown of life in James 1.12 for those who endure trials. This crown is again mentioned in Revelation 2.10 to those who endure suffering. The crown of righteousness for those who fought the good fight and look forward to his appearing is mentioned in 2 Timothy 4.8. And then consider 
the special position of Christ, who's seated at the right hand of God. But in some peculiar moments, we see him standing. Now he sits because he's completed the finished work of redemption for us. It's a privileged position. But he stands when? He stands when people are martyred. We read of Stephen when he was stoned to death in Acts 7.56. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. What a privilege to have Christ greet martyrs this way and honor their faithfulness until the end. Sharing Christ's suffering also means our suffering for Christ is blessed with present joy. Notice that the joy in suffering is not automatic, but qualified by those who share in Christ's sufferings. When we find Christ to be our ultimate or intimate helper in suffering, joy is going to come. The apostles were experiencing many persecutions at the hand of Jewish officials. And we read in one of them, then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. How is that? And when Paul and Silas were jailed, we read after midnight, Paul and Silas were praying, singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. I remember in college, myself and a couple friends were invited to Uh, speak at a VBS in Cleveland. I think I've shared this story to you before. But it was not at a gospel preaching church. And there were, I don't know how many kids, 30 or 40 that were there. And we all had about 10 minutes to speak and we were just pounding away at the gospel. And as I remember, every one of those children stood up and responded to the gospel. It was an amazing thing, but the priest of the church we were at was rocking back and forth like this, and when those kids came and we went to rooms to pray for them, he started screaming and yelling, get out, get out, we don't want you here. (laughs) And when we went to our cars, we looked at each other and said, Wasn't that great? Can you believe that? That was for the gospel. It was not scared. It was not wish we'd have done this different. It was like just just a little bit of a taste of what Peter and Paul and the apostles went through. Listen, joy is not a mind trick during suffering, right? Right? It is the deliberate choice of deeper fellowship with Christ and believing his promises about our future. It's a deep confidence that God is in control of every area of our lives, even the painful places. And when we choose these objective realities, joy becomes our experience. Verse 14, if you're insulted For the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. 
Insulted refers to being slandered. It has synonyms such as demote, chide, taunt, or revile. It describes demolishing a person's character with false information. You'll be accused of things you did not do. You will be accused of having evil motives. You will be called names and slandered. Now listen, all people have been insulted. All of us have been. But what Peter is talking about are Christians experiencing insults because of their allegiance to Christ. You know, you can call a person a Presbyterian, a Methodist, or whatever, and usually there's no opposition. But tell them you are a Christian, faithful follower of Christ, and that changes the tone of a lot of conversations. Satan hates that name. Every time we are reproached for the name of Christ, we have the opportunity to bring glory to that name. And listen, insults are prevalent in our age because of the enculturation of people using their feelings as the baseline for truth. We often hear, follow your own truth. And it stands at odds with the one who said, I am the way, the what? The truth, the life. And then he gave that truth to his apostles who wrote the New Testament, who we now can enjoy his words, the Old and New Testament, written by God for our edification. Listen, when suffering happens, it is human to wonder what we did wrong. Some may even feel some shame. And there are times when you even question reality. You know, you think, um, maybe I just got this all wrong. Peter implies, instead of doing all that, questioning yourself, wondering, you know, what is happening, he says, listen, beloved, you are blessed. You are blessed. No, it's a good thing. Glorify God when you bear his name. Jesus said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Satan knows whether it's world governments or bogus religious leaders, they can't kill Christ anymore. So they're going to go after Christians. Peter brings another member of the Trinity into the situation by saying that the Spirit produces glory for Christ who rests upon you in suffering. The blessing named in verse 13 was future. Here in verse 14, the blessing is present. The Spirit is resting upon persecuted believers. Not only is there divine help, there is divine favor. The Spirit of God is resting with refreshing power upon the child of God in the midst of persecution. 
Consider these Old Testament scenarios. The Jews experienced what was called the Shekinah glory of God, which was the manifest presence of God in their lives. In Exodus 16, 7, Moses said, In the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord. In Exodus 24, 16, the glory of the Lord settled upon Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. That was when the law was being delivered to Moses. When the tabernacle was completed, we read, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And we read of various other instances of the Shekinah, the brilliant glory of God in the life of the Old Testament saints. Now listen, I've heard a lot of talk about being filled with the Spirit, what all that means. A lot of talk about, you know, being baptized in the Spirit and what that means. And a lot of talk about speaking in tongues and how you need it, how you don't need it. A lot of talk about all that. And I'm not going to go over that ground again because we did that in, when we went through the, the book of Acts. But I'll go through the book of Acts for another four years if you want, all right? Would you like that again? All right. All right. Didn't think so. All right. But let's... Let's recognize this, okay? There is not a more glorious manifestation of the Spirit of God than when a believer is persecuted and their life is one of enduring faithfulness to Christ. This brings God glory. This is a manifestation of the Spirit of God resting upon the believer. And when Christians grab at the manifestation of the Holy Spirit only as a stage demonstration and miss the manifestation of the Spirit in suffering, it greatly limits our recognition of God's work. It is in suffering that the best of the intimacy with Christ and the manifestation of the Spirit are witnessed. Listen, as glorious as the temple was and the manifestation of the Spirit during the giving of the law, the believer has something far more joyous and by the way, far more continuous because the Spirit resides in us now. He rests on us. He dwells in us. He supports us. He's Please with us in the unspeakable privilege of suffering. The late Christian author Larry Crabb once wrote, I was talking with a 34-year-old man who told me this story. He was born with a severe physical deformity. His parents were wealthy and prominent in their community and church. Medical doctors did their best, but their son's deformity was not correctable. He was going to be deformed all his life. The parents decided they wanted no part of this youngster. They took him to an orphanage and had no contact with him for well over 19 years. His brothers were told that the young man had died at birth. When I talked to this young man just a few days ago, he said, if I were to face all the pain that I feel thinking back in my life, it would destroy me. There is no way in the world I could face all that pain. It's just too much. See, I have a sneaky suspicion that there are some Christians who view God that way, rejected by those who are supposed to love us. 
Because maybe it was something you did, something about your life, a secret you're holding, and you think, there's no way that God can use me. I am useless. And that's what you've been telling yourself for years. There's no way God can use me. That, my friends, is deception. That's not the reality of the situation. Our spiritual father desires to draw near to us. Listen, even in our sin, because he's provided a sacrifice in Jesus Christ to forgive us of our sins. So even when we've done wrong, all right, there's a way for us to receive that forgiveness and enjoy that fellowship. But he also desires to draw near to us then in our pain, in our suffering. His arms are open wide. His spirit rests upon us. And if you misread those arms and you think he's wanting to slap you, he's wanting to play hack-a-mole on your head while you suffer, or worse yet, just forget you, not recognize you at all. If that's your thinking, you will miss some of the greatest blessing that life has to offer. Because in the furnace, there he is. When people attack, there he is. He is providing. He is loving. He empathizes with our weakness. And he is glorified by our faithfulness and endurance. You know, God has blessed our family so much. I have a car that works. I have a home that we enjoy, a wonderful family, furniture we enjoy. I have cable television and can watch ESPN. Life is good. I can watch the Cardinals and see what Albert Pujols is doing. Life is good. But my friends, as much joy as I get from all of that, it's nothing compared to the joy that comes from following our Savior, and even more so if I'm being willing to suffer. I know he's awfully glad about that, and he's ready to reward that. I hope that we can get our minds to wrap around this thought and realize he's there with us, ready to provide what we need in that moment. Let's pray.